Hello and welcome to the Marathon Medic podcast. I'm your host, Amy Bolsh, a doctor and running coach with an interest in sports and exercise medicine. These podcast episodes are all about physical activity, exercise and health, and today I'm joined by Anita Bean. Anita is a sports nutritionist and best-selling author with titles that include The Complete Guide to Sports Nutrition, The Runner's Cookbook and The Vegan Athlete's Cookbook. Anita is also the nutritionist for the London Marathon and Ride London and has previously worked for the British Olympic Association and Swim England. On this episode, we're discussing the biggest changes in sports nutrition over the last few decades, how we should be fueling and recovering from endurance activities, including long runs, and how we can optimise athletic performance on a plant-based diet. We also discuss some popular supplements, including creatine, omega-3 and CBD. Hi, Anita. Thank you so much for joining me. I've really been looking forward to this conversation. So hopefully those listening have a, have a good idea of who you are. But for those that don't, would you mind just introducing yourself, please? Yes, sure. Um, I'm a registered nutritionist. I'm also an author and a health writer and also a former bodybuilding champion. (laughs) Something perhaps that you didn't know, Amy. I I actually won the British Bodybuilding Championships quite a number of years ago in 1991. Um, So I specialise in sport and exercise nutrition. I've written 30 books. Actually, it's a nice round number nowadays. Um, Perhaps the most well-known title is The Complete Guide to Sports Nutrition, and that's now in its ninth edition that came out earlier this year. Um, I've done four cookbooks, and the most recent is The Vegan Athletes Cookbook. But I have been running my own uh, nutrition consultancy as a freelance sports nutritionist um, for quite a number of years since since 1990. I'm nutritionist for the London Marathon and Ride London and I write regularly for Cycling Weekly for Good Housekeeping and Waitrose Food Magazine. Great and I have to pick up on the fact that you said that you're the British bodybuilding champion for 1991. Tell me a little bit more about that and, and what led you to get into that sport in particular. Well, um, fitness and nutrition have always been a really big part of my life. Um, I mean, as a, as a child, teenager, I wasn't particularly sporty. I mean, I enjoyed physical activity and school sports, but certainly wasn't a star. But it's something, you know, weight training um, is something I fell into when I was at university studying. Um, but in those days, we're talking about the 1980s here. In those days, um, weight training, bodybuilding was almost unheard of for women. It was certainly very much a minority sport. And, you know, I guess a lot of men thought it was a bit strange, a little bit intimidating, but it was something that I really, really enjoyed. I noticed that I could get results really quickly. Um, and then I started to compete after my university days. And it actually took me 10 years to get from, you know, zero from nothing up to British bodybuilding champion that took 10 years so I, I went through regional rounds I had four goes at the British championships until I actually got first place and got a great big trophy I did the world championships after that but uh, I'm as you can you can look at me now as we're recording I'm a lightweight I'm actually only 52 kilos and I I'm just under five foot two in height, so I'm quite small. Um, but yeah, it's surprising what huge improvements, huge benefits weight training does for women. I mean, nowadays it's not at all unusual. In fact, so many women utilize um, you know, resistance training as part of their, their sports training. And it's, it's very, very acceptable. So things have changed hugely, actually, in those uh, 
two, three decades since I was a bodybuilder. But, you know, there's still a lot of myths, you know, a lot of crazy stuff still around when it comes to nutrition and supplementation. And I guess we can you know, talk about some of those as we go through the conversation. And when you were getting into bodybuilding at that point, were you just a, a general nutritionist? Was that element of your life something that inspired you to look more into sports nutrition or had the sports nutrition been part of your life before you got into sport very competitively yourself? Well sports nutrition wasn't actually a recognised subject or topic in those days but you are right Amy that um, so I was qualified as a, as, a, as a nutritionist, a registered nutritionist and I started to work at the time I was actually working with the Dairy Council and working in health and nutrition education so I did have the fortune of working with athletes It was part of the NDC sponsorship program and I worked with some well-known track and field athletes and we worked together and I you know also with my with my bodybuilding interest and I was interested in other sports as well so that led me into sports nutrition there there was there were no books there was virtually no information on you know the effect of nutrition on performance so I gleaned whatever I could from the small amount of research at the time. I wrote a book, um, The Complete Guide to Sports Nutrition, and the first edition was published in 1994. No, 1993, I should remember that. Uh, and I've updated it ever since, but it was really the first book of you know in in that topic at the time and um you know so much has changed you know lots and lots of uh new research since then um which you know i'm really happy to talk to you about some of the big changes in sports nutrition since since my early part of my career it's absolutely crazy to think that sports nutrition wasn't recognized and actually you know that's that's quite a recent time period that we're talking about and obviously it's it's an absolutely booming industry now so you mentioned the changes that you've witnessed and obviously you've updated your book regularly throughout that time what are the kind of headlines in terms of those big changes over the last 20 or so years one of the big I and mean, there are quite a few one of the big ones of course is this whole concept of carb loading um which is something that you know every run every long distance runner is familiar with so back in the 60s and 70s for example the the, the method of carb loading was to go through a depletion phase where you had a really low carb diet for several days three or four days before a marathon um and then you loaded for the last two or three days but of course that was associated with many disadvantages. You know, the, the athletes would just feel absolutely terrible during the, the, the depletion phase, during the loading phase. They would actually gain weight and feel rather heavy. Um, so now that's all been replaced. And what uh, marathon runners do now is simply to eat a bit more carbohydrate in the two to three days before their event. I mean, of course, that's underpinned by new research. So research has shown that that, that method of carb loading was sort of this gradual increase in in carb intake and a gradual taper in training is actually just as effective. So the whole carb loading concept has changed quite a lot. And also, I think I'm talking about carbs. I think the way that athletes consume carbohydrate has drastically changed. I mean, the the, the night when I first wrote the books in the 1990s, for example, and even the early 2000s, the idea was to follow a high carb diet, no matter what sport you're doing, no matter what the intensity, duration of training doing, everything was high carb. We talked about diet comprising 60-70% of carbohydrate. But now the new research has shown that actually uh, manipulating your carbs or periodizing your carbs around different types of training sessions um, can actually produces far more effective results in terms of endurance performance. So for example, it's, it's a paradigm that we call fueling for the work required. So for example, if you are doing a relatively low intensity session where there's 
there's not much taxation on your glycogen stores, then you would have um, a low carb intake beforehand. And that can actually bring about benefits. So training in a, in a low carb state can actually bring about benefits in uh, endurance training adaptations, you know, more mitochondria, more fat oxidizing enzymes and then before your high intensity trainings which is what we call the high quality sessions so if you're a runner that we're talking about doing hills we're talking about intervals tempo runs then you would be consuming a lot more carbs so you build up your glycogen stores beforehand and so therefore you would maximize the training benefits so that's that's really new um I think there's a lot of changes in advice around hydration. So what's really interesting, actually, back in the 60s and 70s, marathon runners would drink absolutely nothing. So they're actually complete marathon. I mean, even, even champions like Ron Hill, he completed, um, you know, he won the, the Commonwealth Marathon Championships um, drinking zero, which, you know, to now, now you just think, how on earth can the human body cope with that? And then we went through a phase. Um, so this is kind of when I was 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 working with athletes, eighties and nineties. And the advice, the official advice, was to drink as much as possible. So you must avoid getting thirsty. You drink ahead of your thirst. And so people are really guzzling lots and lots of drinks. And that, that's another thing that there weren't really so many sports drinks around. It was mostly water or Coca Cola that people were drinking. Um, but then you know, there's more research. The ACSM, for example, issued advice was actually don't drink as much as possible because that can lead to other problems such as hyponatremia and so the advice changed to to really following your thirst you drink according to your body's um, thirst and your requirements that way but of course now I'd say really the last five years or so the advice really is a blend of that and for most part most types of activities certainly anything less than about two hours, yeah, listen to your body, drink to thirst, but actually where sweat losses are quite high, so the kind of weather that we're having currently this summer, <laughs> it's humid, it's hot, sweat losses are particularly high, you maybe you're exercising for longer than 90 minutes, then perhaps planned drinking is a better strategy, so you would have an idea of your sweat rate from your, your training runs, so you know roughly how much sweat you're losing roughly how much sweat sorry fluid you need to replace so it's a kind of it's a mixture now of planned drinking and drinking to thirst according to your sweat rate and and also the condition you know, how hot and humid it is um, and then sports drinks are quite quite a new thing really um that so they they kind of evolved i would say throughout the 80s and 90s and uh, they're, they're really you know it's main they're mainstream now and if anything actually too many people are consuming sports drinks when they really, really don't need them. You really only need sports drinks if you are exercising at a high intensity for longer than 60 or 90 minutes when you really do need additional carbohydrate. But of course, many people are just guzzling sports drinks um, in the belief that they will make them uh, improve their performance, which isn't the case at all. And also you don't need sodium. I mean, a lot of people think you need to keep replacing sodium during uh, exercise, but actually you know, I listened to the, in fact, I was having a conversation with one of the leading experts in hydration, um, Dr. Lewis James, actually from Loughborough University. And he said, for the majority of exercise for, that's less than two hours or so, you're not losing appreciable amounts of sodium. So you don't need to consume you know, electrolyte tablets and so on during exercise. It will have zero benefit on your performance. Um, and it's really it's only the, the pro, you know, the, the highly professional elite athletes who would need to consider um, electrolyte replacement. So that's all, you know, all these things that are coming to sort of circling back. And 
all these things have changed. Um, and perhaps one of the biggest changes right now, just in the last two or three years, has been the trend with um, moving away from meat consumption as a protein source and more towards plant proteins. And certainly plant-based diets have become much more popular amongst athletes. You know, there's anecdotal evidence, but there's, you know, an increasing amount of scientific evidence underpinning this trend. And it's one that I'm personally extremely interested in because I think this is the direction um, dietary patterns are going. Yeah, I could probably talk <laughs> another hour about changes of trends, but I'll just start showing my age, really, won't it? <laughs> we'll pull apart some of the some of the things you touched on, particularly the carbohydrate fueling and, and plant based athletes. But what I always wonder is, you know, what conversation would we be having in twenty years' time in terms of the advice that we're giving now compared to what we'll be giving in? 2040. What do you think um, Mm. will be the direction of research for sports nutrition over the next 20 years? Is there any area that you think, actually, we we just don't know enough about that and we we don't have the evidence to support giving advice in this area at the moment? I mean, one one really hot area of research right now, and it's just growing and growing, is with regard to low energy availability in athletes, both males and females. It used to be called the, the female athlete triad. It was thought to be something that was more specific to female athletes. And in fact, in my book, the one we were just talking about, The Complete Guide to Sports Nutrition, um, I did have a chapter in there called The Female Athlete, where I just talked about the female athlete triad, which was all about um, you know, the, the, the three cornerstones of the syndrome, uh, which were um, low energy availability, uh, bone health and amenorrhea. Um, but now you know, we've known in the last several, well, the last few years, actually, it's, it's a syndrome that's not exclusive to females. Um, and it's, it's something now that's called relative energy deficiency in sport and it affects males as well. There's a huge amount of uh, research going on. And I think it's it's really, really fascinating. We now know that, well, I suppose it's underfueling in a sense, but it affects every single system in the body. It affects the heart. It affects you know, the brain, the gut, the immune system, um, and definitely can affect your performance and your health. And one of the, the big side effects, sort of what the long-term negative effects of underfueling is a, a loss in bone strength and a loss loss of bone mass um, and you know the, the initial signs now we know now what to look out for what are the early warning signs and that's so so important and it's something that you know coaches are having to be much more aware of to look out for the signs amongst definitely amongst um, sort of endurance athletes but other sports as well are affected even so I've worked a lot with swimmers actually early signs are there so the early signs to look out would be persistent fatigue struggling to recover uh, mood changes anxiety um obviously pains in, in the shins could indicate that you know the early stages of stress fractures in in the shins um and then of course we're getting more stories actually from well-known female athletes terrible stories actually of um you know, early osteoporosis in their 20s. You know, in other words, this the bone loss, bone fractures. And yeah, sorry, I should actually say one of the, the big signs in females, of course, is a loss of periods, so amenorrhea or irregular periods. These are really big, big red flags. And it's something that has been overlooked until very recently. It was seen as a normal side effect of hard training. You know, if you were a 
hard training athlete. It just is part and parcel. It's because you're lean. It's because you train hard. No, that's that we know now that that is not correct at all. It's a sign that something is wrong in your body. There's a hormonal disruption. So it's good that more people are talking about it. You know, athletes are talking about it. Coaches are talking about it. Um, sport and exercise professionals are talking about it. So hopefully we can avert some of the problems that uh, athletes have been you know, suffering from. Um, and it's you know, a lot of it is tied up with, with body weight issues, body image issues. And, um, you know, just sort of going back to how things have changed over the, the few years, it was once thought that the lighter you were, the better your performance. And, I mean, you know, as a, as a runner, it was, used to be thought that, you know, the, the, the lighter you, you could get, the better would be your race performance. But actually that can come at a price. Um, you know, your performance can suffer, but definitely your health can suffer. And so it's not something I, I you know, I talked about it in my book, you know, several you know, years ago, back in the 1990s and early 2000s. Um, you know, the idea of trying to, to optimize your body composition and, and reduce body fat level to improve performance. But now we know that you've got to be much more careful. There is, a, I suppose, an optimal range of body weight that's appropriate for different athletes according to your build, according to your sport. But there's still, you know, I mean, there's still practices that I witness, you know, even amongst swimmers, for example, it's really still a very toxic culture of weighing young swimmers, teenage swimmers. They're weighed, they have their body fat levels taken. They're even shamed in front. You know, these are top level swimmers that I've worked with. And they're even feel like almost shamed in front of their teammates because they're told how much they weigh. They're told what their body fat levels are. If they don't do well in a race, they're told, right, you need to lose two kilos these are young swimmers and um you know it just leads to disordered eating and clinical eating disorders it's really is quite alarming i'm just you know really really hoping as more you know more research comes out more anecdotes come you know sad stories come out that the culture around body weight performance will really have to change i definitely think at a an elite and competitive level it's definitely becoming more talked about but I also worry about those amateur athletes that don't have the input from coaches or nutritionists for example and there is definitely this idea that I think people don't often appreciate how much energy they're burning when they're running and how much more they need to eat because of that especially you know as you said female endurance runners um, obviously that's what I do and I think even myself I, I don't appreciate how much energy I need to be, to be eating after, you know, 20 mile runs on a Saturday. You come back into your normal life or go to work because you're not a professional athlete and maybe you haven't fueled as, as appropriately as, as you need to. Um, but it's, it's exciting that work is being done in that area and hopefully we'll see more and more of that coming out. Definitely. But yeah, I think, you know, this whole concept of fueling for performance is something that's often overlooked by by runners in particular you know you've mentioned that runners will do you know, a long run it could be you know whether it's a 20 mile training run or a half marathon competition but without appreciating that they really do need to fuel properly beforehand during and then especially afterwards for the recovery um, and certainly I would say that if you're doing any run uh, or, or any endurance activity that's longer than 90 minutes or so. It's so important to prioritise carbohydrate intake beforehand. And that's because when you are 
doing those activities, you've got just a very finite supply of glycogen. So you're always going to be burning glycogen as well as some body fat. So those are the two main fuels that your muscles are using. Um, but we've stored just a limited amount of glycogen. It's um, the average person. It's maximum 500 grams. That's equivalent to 2000 calories. And that's only enough to last you for approximately 90 minutes, maybe two hours max of moderate intensity endurance running. So, so for example, running at a marathon pace. Um, so that's why it's really important. You know, you could you could run out of glycogen. And when that happens, your pace drops, fatigue sets in. And um, obviously, that's going to affect your, your performance. And you can at that point, you know, if it gets really low, you hit the wall. So it's been absolutely, utterly fatigued. You can't even walk and get disorientated. Um, but the, you know, the, the, the main thing is that you've got to really prioritize carbohydrate intake um, prior to any long run, not just a marathon or a half marathon. And then afterwards, you know, after that run, you know, rather as you say, rather than sort of rushing back to work and thinking, oh, well, I feel okay for now, um, you've really got to prioritize recovery because that's uh, not only when you restore your fuel reserves, but it's also when those training adaptations take place, that's when your muscles get stronger that's when the mitochondria recover and you get a multiplication of mitochondria we've got mitochondrial myogenesis just to put a very sciencey term to it but that's that's really what you're aiming for anytime you do a training run you're not just doing it for the pure fun of it you know you also want to 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 improve your fitness and that's what it means that you've to improve your fitness you've got to put the right fuels in afterwards so you're recovering nutrition is absolutely paramount so you're getting the carbs in getting the protein in getting those antioxidants, the vitamins, minerals from all the right foods, you know, from nutrient-dense foods is really, really important. Um, so I'd say actually, I, in fact, a lot of times I prioritise recovering nutrition rather than the meal before. So it's not so much what you eat in your, your pre-exercise meal that's going to make a difference. It's what you eat after any exercise session that is really going to make a big difference and what about when people are actually doing the exercise session so if we just take runners for example um what time period would you say actually uh, if you're running for longer than 30 or 45 minutes or an hour you need to start taking some carbohydrate yeah. on board during that run do you have certain cutoffs for that yeah i mean it's again it's not sort of a black and white cutoffs but generally if you are exercising continually for longer than about 90 minutes then you should take on board carbs during that exercise. And the reason is that taking on board the carbs will help to maintain your blood sugar level, your blood glucose levels, um, and it will help to eke out your glycogen, those precious glycogen stores and delay fatigue. So just you know, three, three basic rules I, I say to endurance athletes, and one is to start fueling early. So after about 30 to 40 minutes in your run, so don't wait until you are tired, until you are depleted and till you know, you're about to hit that point of fatigue. Um, and then you want to be aiming for between 30 and 60 grams of carbs per hour. But I like to love break that down to half hour chunks. So you want to be, so the third thing is that you want to be doing this regularly. So you know, at least every 30 minutes, you're talking about 15 to 30 grams of carbs depending on the intensity of your running. So, you know, if you're a slowish run, if you're going a moderate pace or an easy pace, you're probably looking at 15 grams for 30 minutes. But if you're going at a, at a quite a good pace, 
then you'd be looking at 30 grams in per 30 minutes. So just a few examples that I can give you of carb, you know, what, what's 30 grams of carbs. So 30 grams of carbs would be equivalent to an energy, so 50 ml energy gel. So you check the label because they will vary. Some of them might be 25 grams some of them are 30 grams. Um, a large banana is pretty close to 30 grams. Um, my favorite is actually Majul dates, so two Majul dates. So these are these large soft dates. And my real favorite is actually to make them into energy bars. So I'll combine them with an equal quantity of ground almonds. So that, that's kind of that's my favorite. So I take with me on the bike or other endurance activities. Um, 500 mils of an isotonic sports drink. That's that gives you your 30 grams or if you prefer sweets which the runners do so six jelly babies for example give you that 30 grams of carbohydrate so at the end of the day everyone's different so try different fuel options you know what works for for you might not work for me and vice versa some people prefer whole food options you know like the bananas homemade energy bars and balls some people prefer sports nutrition products like gels drinks and that sort of thing um, so it's it's partly personal preference and trialing out really what agrees with you best what gives you the results and what are your thoughts about energy gels and drinks because a gel for example it's very processed it's pretty much just sugar um, so it's obviously doing the job whilst you're running but it holds no real nutritional value so as a sports nutritionist I'm just uh, keen to know what your thoughts are about using those more kind of sports marketed uh, products to get your energy in during runs yeah, I think, I mean, you, you summarise it pretty well. The advantage of these products, of course, is is the convenience and also the reassurance that you are getting a certain amount of carbs per portion. But, of course, the disadvantage, as you've summarised, is that they are highly processed. They are officially termed what we call ultra-processed foods. That They provide practically nothing apart from sugars. But also, these, um, so yeah, and also they can, they're quite high in acids. They've got added, you know, citric acid and so on, which act partly as a preservative and partly as um, you know, for flavour reasons. And of course, that's incredibly harmful to your teeth. The study published very recently has shown that the, the dental health in, in athletes is very poor due to the consumption of these sports nutrition products. But another bigger disadvantage for many athletes is that they are very concentrated in carbohydrate and that can cause gut problems. So, um, you know, they, they exert a, an osmotic pressure in the gut, particularly in the lower part of the gut. And that can draw water into the gut lumen. And what that, that can result in some very unpleasant symptoms, you know, gas, bloating, um, urgent need to go to the loo. So you know, terribly inconvenient and uncomfortable um, and surprisingly common. It is surprising how many athletes persist in having these products and they, they experience gut problems, you know, very, very common um, so certainly they don't suit everyone. Um, there are ways of getting around it. You can dilute them, have them with lots of water. Some people actually will or just make a, a sports drink from a gel. It sounds a little bit a little bit strange, but it's a way of diluting them so that you're not getting this concentration of carbs. But my pre my personal preference is to trial whole food options in training. So whether it's in these medjool dates and energy balls or bananas, some people like rice cakes. But you can, yeah, there are the sort of different things that you should really trial to find out what, what works with your gut. You know, some people just got very sensitive guts and therefore they probably need to steer away from the sports nutrition gels and bars. 
I'm definitely going to try the medjool dates idea. That sounds that sounds much better because I hate the gels taste as well. So um, yeah, it's nice to get ideas, yeah. isn't it? Just to, to try these things out. Um, so you've explained a lot about the importance of fueling before activity, during and after. But there is a bit of a, whether it's a fad, I'm not sure, but it's quite popular to try fasted training at the moment where you might do your long run having not had breakfast. So your the last time you've eaten is, is the evening before. Why do people feel that fasted training is beneficial? Is there evidence to support that it's actually beneficial? Um, and I guess having spoken about energy deficiency, is this something that's sensible given that we know that a lot of athletes do suffer with low energy availability? Yeah, absolutely. So the idea behind fasted training is to encourage the body to burn a higher percentage of fat for fuel and become less reliant on carbohydrate. So that can potentially, I say potentially in big capital letters, provide um, performance benefits in terms of endurance training adaptations. Um, But actually a lot of people, a lot of athletes, I mean, are also using it as a weight loss strategy. So the disadvantages of faster training, especially if you're doing it on a regular basis, is that exercise feels harder at any given intensity. So you've got lower glycogen stores, lower blood sugar levels. And so this may compromise your exercise intensity and volume and lead to early fatigue. So we certainly know that if you're training in a, in a low-carb state, that kind of knocks out your top gear. The energy cannot be produced fast enough to support high intensity training. So basically having to reduce the intensity of your exercise. But we also know that um, you know from studies of Louise Burke from Australia, she's a leading ex- world expert in sports nutrition. She has shown her studies with elite race walkers that it actually training in a low carb state actually reduces energy efficiency and there is actually a performance decrease compared to consuming a high carb diet or a periodized carb diet so the performance benefits are actually not supported by uh, current evidence Uh, when it comes to weight loss um, I would just say that it's not an effective strategy for weight loss because the only way you're going to lose weight is by creating an energy deficit over several days, not over just a couple of hours whilst you're training. So the only time when I think it's okay to do faster training really is if you prefer exercising, say, first thing in the morning on an empty stomach before breakfast and you find it uncomfortable to exercise with food in your stomach. Um, And I think that's fine if you are doing moderate or low intensity training. So you wouldn't be doing your hard, high quality training sessions in a, in a low carb state or, or, or in a faster train state. And then the final point, which you made quite rightly, was the danger of doing too much faster training, you know, inadequate recovery, and that can result in low energy availability and ultimately into REDS. Basically, you don't have enough energy to support the um, essential functions in your body, such as reproductive function um, and then long term we've already spoken about can lead to bone loss and fractures so it's something that you've got, got to sort of be really careful about so don't do lots of faster training with high intensity training the two just don't marry up at all so faster training is all right for low intensity stuff maybe it's okay if you're an ultra runner so if you're just doing a lot of low intensity long duration stuff it's a way of allowing your body to become a, a better fat burner. So you don't need to take so much food, so much carbs with you on those long runs 
But apart from that, there's not really any good performance or health reason to go for faster training. Perfect. That's, that's really useful to know. And as, I mean, I also think it's personal, isn't it? I cannot run hungry at all, um, whereas other people can quite comfortably go out. So I, th- I think it's, you know, listening to your body as, as well, isn't it? As well as kind of taking on all that research that you've mentioned. Um, and another thing that you mentioned when we were discussing the changes in sports nutrition is there's been a, a big explosion of plant-based athletes, particularly in endurance uh, runners from, from what I can see. Um, so I think that there's lots to explore here, but I think my first question is, is a plant-based diet suitable for being an athlete? And is there certain sports that it's, that it's better for? So for example, is it more sufficient for endurance athletes compared to uh, bodybuilders, for example? Yeah, I mean, there are really quite, an, there's a number of key ways that plant-based diet can confer a performance advantage so you know health benefits are one thing so we know that actually there are plenty of scientific studies to support the health benefits of consuming more plants and fewer animal products so the main ways that a plant-based diet can confer you with a performance advantage firstly is that the diet you know so we're talking about whole food uh, plant-based diet will be higher in carbohydrate generally so of course we know that that can help to optimize your glycogen stores and that's certainly an advantage for endurance athletes the second advantage the higher content of plant foods means that that will foster a more diverse gut microbiota and of course that will have numerous benefits for your health for your performance and your recovery it also and the third one is that you're getting more antioxidants that you are getting more polyphenols by virtue of having a higher plant intake and that means that there will be less oxidative stress on the body that there will be less post-exercise inflammation or at least you can combat post-exercise inflammation and that will improve your post-exercise recovery and then finally the the, the diet tends to be higher in nitrates because you're consuming more vegetables and so of course higher nitrate intake means that you will have probably improved vascular function better blood flow and and that means a better endurance capacity so that's the sort of if you like that's the explanation behind plant-based diets for performance there's a lot of anecdotal evidence you know we've got top athletes like Novak Djokovic, um, Lewis Hamilton. There's, there's many top athletes who are completely plant-based, uh, you know, vegan diets. Um, and, there's, and in terms of science, well, there's not a huge amount of studies that have compared omnivorous diets with vegetarian vegan diets, but certainly the handful out there, there's probably about a dozen good quality studies, but they have all supported the fact that you are not putting yourself at disadvantage compared to an omnivorous diet. So in other words, you can still get adequate protein, you can still get all the nutrients that you need. And so athletes generally are just as strong, you know, the endurance capacity is just as great. If any, some, you know, one of the studies at the University of Arizona showed that um, athletes, the female athletes actually had better endurance capacity. Maybe that was due to the carb content of the diet. Um, so, yeah, there's really you know, many advantages associated with plant-based diet, but perhaps the only disadvantage that um, I come across, and that is you know, with endurance athletes, is the fact that diet is very high in fibre and is quite, quite bulky, so you need quite a high volume of foods. And so it can be quite tricky to meet your energy requirements 
if you've got a very high training volume. So cyclists, for example, that I've spoken to have found that, you know, when they first go plant-based, that they struggle to get enough calories, you know, just, just to meet their energy needs. And so you need to then, you know, I will give them advice and use more, you know, more, you know, more energy-dense, nutritious foods like nuts, nut butters, avocado, oils, that kind of thing. So you kind of need to just think a little bit more outside of the box when you become plant-based. For people that are becoming plant-based, I think sometimes there there are some concerns around protein in particular because we associate meat with with protein and often we think, oh, how am I ever going to get that from a plant-based diet? Um, what's the difference between plant-based and animal-based protein? And when you're speaking with um, clients who have plant-based diet, what are your kind of top recommendations for plant-based sources of protein? I mean, you're right. Until recently, plant proteins were considered less effective for, for building muscle and for recovery and exercise compared to animal proteins, owing to their overall lower amino acid content and their lower con- content of leucine in particular. So this is a key amino acid that's responsible for triggering muscle protein synthesis, in other words, muscle building. However, these studies have all looked at the short-term effects on muscle protein synthesis. They literally just measured the rise in amino acid contents in the blood over a period of three, four or five hours. So, as you know, you don't build muscle in five hours. So it's much more meaningful to look at muscle gain, the kind of gains that you would get over several days or weeks. And that's been done recently. So the most recent study that was published last year actually was carried out at Sao Paulo University in Brazil. And they compared the gains in muscle and strength in vegans compared with omnivores. Both groups were consuming the same amount of protein, so 1.6 grams per kilogram body weight. So one was just from plant sources, the other one was just from was a mixture of animal and, and plant proteins. And what they found was that after 12 weeks, both groups gained exactly the same amount of strength and muscle. So in other words, it didn't matter where the protein was coming from. And in fact, you know, the, the conclusion from a, a, a meta-analysis that was carried out recently by Mark Messina, they compared soy protein with um, omnivorous diets. And they found that provided you are meeting this threshold of protein intake of 1.6 grams per kilogram body weight, that it doesn't matter that whether the protein is plant or animal. So there is no difference. Um, but yeah, certainly. And then just to answer the final part of your question was where should, you know, what's the best way that athletes can get their plant proteins? Well, of course, there are many foods. In fact, most foods supply some protein, but um, the proteins that contain um, all the amino acids in amounts that are closely matched to the body's needs would be soy. So all soy products are really good. So we're talking about tofu, we're talking about soy plant milk and, and yogurt, you know, soya yogurts. Uh, edamame beans are good and sort of certain soya substitutes like soya mint. So all of these, um, tempeh, that's another really rich source. Um, so they, they're, they're really good for supplying you with all the amino acids and good amounts and quinoa and chia seeds, hemp seeds. But you can also get protein from, from pulses, which are beans, lentils, chickpeas. We're talking about grains, so all grain, whole grains, vegetables, supply some protein. The key is to get a variety. So as long as you're getting a variety, a good range of plant foods throughout the day, then you can rest assured that you will be getting all the amino acids that you need 
for for fueling exercise or rather for recovering from exercise and facilitating exercise adaptations um so it really isn't a problem at all and you know i as i said i myself i've been vegetarian actually my entire life so since i was born i've been vegetarian but more recently i have uh, moved away from animal products altogether so i'm completely plant-based at the moment and it's so much easier i mean nowadays it's easy back in back in my childhood days and early you know early parts of my career it was actually quite hard to, yeah it really really hard to become vegan it's okay vegetarian you could eat dairy products and eggs but um nowadays it's not a problem you know, eating out isn't isn't such an issue that it used to be so i think it's quite doable for a lot of athletes yeah i agree i'm not plant-based myself but i definitely try to be most of the time and it's it's just very easy no matter if you're eating in or eating out one thing I did want to touch on as you said there about the specific amount of protein is I think you said 1.6 grams per kilogram does that change through the life course do um, older athletes need more protein and again is that easy to support through a plant-based diet yeah I mean 1.6 I should I should hasten to add that 1.6 really refer to studies done with resistance training, not so much with endurance athletes. So generally, um, once you are exercising more than three times a week, so you sort of go from being a very much a recreational exercise to something that's a bit more serious, protein requirements, yes, they, they go up to between 1.2 and 2 grams. So it will depend really what your goals are and what type of sport you're doing. And then as we get older, yes, you are right. Protein requirements do change because we actually lose our anabolic capacity so what that means it's harder for the body to convert dietary protein into muscle so you know you basically you need to consume more to get the same effects and ditto with training you need to actually train harder which is you know, a bit unfortunate as you're getting older you need to train harder to get the same gains so the question is can you get that from plant-based sources well yes but of course you've got to just be very mindful of where you're getting your protein, how you're, yeah, you know, how much you're you're consuming, and really to try and prioritise all of the the whole food, plant based sources. You know, your your pulses, grains, the, the the soya products, and and that kind of thing. But yes, it's doable. It's something that I've certainly am hoping or trying very hard to put into practice myself. You know, I'm still training very hard. Well, I say very hard. I'm training as hard as I possibly can, not in bodybuilding, but in a variety of different sports now. And I'm very mindful that recovery is harder. It is actually harder to get gains in, in muscle as you get older. And so therefore, you do need to pay extra attention to your dietary sources. Yeah, I think there's a, a kind of misconception that when you get older, you don't need as many calories, for example, and your metabolic rate has slowed down, which is, is true. But if you're obviously training at, at a high level, or even just kind of continuing to be active as an older adult, you do need to still pay, pay due attention to what you're eating and making sure that you're recovering like you would at any age. Yeah, abs- yeah, absolutely. Diet does have become, you know, just is just as important as it, you know, as it was as it's younger age. And if anything, you know, you've got to be a bit more careful about your, your protein intake and not to make sure that it doesn't you, you don't let it slip <laughs> perfect and I just wanted to finish by asking you about a few supplements so there's obviously an abundance of supplements that athletes may choose to take or not um, and there's a couple that I just wanted to get your opinion on the first one was creatine and I just wondered if you could explain why athletes might choose to take creatine what the evidence was and in particular if this was a useful supplement for plant-based athletes to take yeah, well, it's um, creatine is a protein that is made from three 
amino acids in our body, so we were quite capable of making it ourselves. Um, it's made from arginine, glycine, and methionine. So it's found um, in meat and fish naturally, which is one of the reasons vegetarians and vegans wouldn't be getting it in their diet. So taking supplements basically means that you are boosting your, your dietary intake. And what it does in the body, creatine combines with phosphorus to form phosphocreatine, which is a high energy compound that fuels high intensity exercise. So we do, there have been many studies, I mean, over the last 25 years, many studies have shown that supplements of creatine can improve performance in short bursts of exercise. So we're talking about sort of HIIT type of training. Um, and so it can lead to improvements in power in speed and strength and muscle mass. Um, and there's also some suggestion that, that creatine may help to improve recovery from injury in combination with the resistance training program. So when it comes to plant-based eating, yeah, because with you know people like me, <laughs> you know, plant-based athletes are getting uh, zero creatine from their diets. So taking supplements, if you are doing that sort of you know the hit type of training, high intensity training, power strength then you you would stand to benefit perhaps more than um, omnivorous athletes who are currently getting some sort of a baseline level in their diet perfect and, and, and on a similar theme omega-3 is something that we associate with oily fish and athletes need a bit more omega-3 should kind of everyday athletes be taking omega-3 supplements why why would they do that and, and again is this something that's a bit more relevant to the plant-based athlete yeah, but I think it's, re it's certainly relevant to plant-based people generally because um, you're getting probably less omega-3 from dietary sources, as you've rightly pointed out, that oil-rich fish um, is the richest source in the diet, although you can get plant-based sources. You, you get your ALAs from chia seeds and um, rapeseed oil, walnuts. You know, there are just, just a few, there's a handful of sources. So taking supplements is actually a very viable proposition for plant-based athletes in particular, but also for athletes generally, because studies have shown that supplementation may help to reduce post-exercise inflammation, particularly after eccentric exercise, that they can help to reduce muscle soreness and promote muscle adaptation recovery so it's really more of a recovery supplement rather than a, a fueling or performance supplement so there are studies to support that and I would just say that um, it's quite difficult to get that level of intake of omega the you know kind of studies of use between one and three grams per day but it's quite difficult to obtain that from food and so therefore supplements so plant-based athletes, for example, you would need to look for a vegan supplement. And these are made from algae oil. Um, it's definitely one that I, I've been using uh, vegan omega-3 supplements for quite a number of years now. And, you know, I like, like to think it's, it's beneficial. At least I'm rest assured that I'm getting sufficient omega-3s to support my health. You know, as you know, it's healthy for, for your blood vessels and maintain brain function, but also for for promoting um just gives you that edge in your recovery after hard exercise that's that's an interesting point you make about kind of that daily requirement that we need and even if you're not plant-based most people aren't having oily fish every single day so actually thinking about supplementing it to make sure you get it every day um is definitely worth worth thinking about and something i hadn't previously considered 
The final supplement I wanted to ask you about, and it's something I really feel I should know more about um, because it's become very, very popular, especially for some reason in the, in the athletic um, field, is CBD, CBD oil, CBD products. So why have these suddenly become so popular amongst athletes um, and what's the evidence to support their use in terms of performance? Yeah, it's extraordinary. There are now you know, dozens and dozens of companies marketing. It is, it is absolutely the supplement du jour. <laughs> Um, so CBD, um, the, the idea is that this is the, if you like, the non-psychoactive part of the hemp plant. Um, the number of sort of very attractive claims behind it. Um, main one is to reduce pain. The second one is to reduce inflammation. The third one is to reduce anxiety. And the fourth one is to improve sleep quality. So all of these are quite attractive for athletes. And the, the use of it is actually very widespread. There was a, a study quite recently amongst 500 rugby players found that 26% of them reported taking CBD either currently or in the past and they take it mainly as a form of pain relief so you know post-exercise pain relief injury pain relief um, so it's a sort of alternative to strong painkillers so it is plausible that CBD supplements may augment the body's own cannabinoid system they're called endocannabinoids but there is actually little evidence at the moment to support all of these claims. But I think the biggest disadvantages of CBD are the risk of contamination with THC. So this is the, the illegal part of the hemp plant that would <laughs> give you a high. So THC, which stands for tetrahydrocannabinol. I think I said that right. So you can correct me if you like. THC is easier. So this is the illegal psychoactive compound. So this there is a risk of inadvertent doping. So if, you, if you're subject to, um, to to doping regulations, it could cause you to fail a doping test. So it's an illegal substance. Um, and then the second disadvantage of CBD contents is that it's really, really difficult to tell how much you are getting in the product. There is a huge variation from brand to brand, and it's really confusing. I mean, I've looked at labels on products, and I can't figure out how much it contains. In fact, nobody even knows how much you should be consuming to get optimal benefits. Um, so some of them are, could be very, very low. Some of them could be contaminated. So in other words, it's really difficult to know what you're getting. And finally, they are incredibly expensive. Um, you know, I looked at the prices and it's quite a big risk. I just think it's a big risk to, to spend out a lot of money on something that A, you don't know whether it really, really works. There's very little scientific evidence behind it. Manufacturers can't make claims because of that. And then also you just don't know what you're getting. It may even cause you to inadvertently fail a drugs test. Yeah, at the moment, I would just say, <laughs> save your money, maybe give it a miss. Yeah, my interpretation of the whole thing is just a very good marketing <laughs> scheme. And actually, as, as, as you said, the risks are there and the benefits aren't at the moment. We just don't know enough. Yeah. So it, it seems a bit of a no brainer to yeah. me, but obviously a lot of other people disagree and have been yeah. using it for some time. Thank you so much for talking to me about all of those things. That's it. I, I've, got, I've got your book that you've mentioned a few times. So that's the Complete Guide to Sports Nutrition, um, which has been really insightful. And there's so much more we could talk about, but hopefully our conversation is helpful to everyone listening. Is there any kind of final comments you wanted to leave people with, especially runners who are mainly runners that listen to this podcast? Um, any final tips that you wanted to share? 
I mean, I suppose one thing that I am omitted to say, and I really should have said um, earlier in the conversation when it comes to plant-based diets, um, is that athletes are turning to them not just for the performance and health benefits, but other reasons um, such as animal welfare. I mean, that's a really big one for me, actually, because by consuming animal products that you are shortening the lives of animals and subjecting them to stress, which they don't need. And just, I, I, I always just remember that, you know, we've got a choice of foods. We're privileged. Um, we don't need to get our nutrition from animal products. So we, we can get our nutrition from other sources that don't harm animals or cause unnecessary suffering. So, um, and then the other big advantage, and that's so pertinent now, is in terms of looking after the planet, the environment, the environmental benefits are really, really big. And we now know that uh, one of the most effective ways of uh, reducing harm to the environment and can go a long way towards mitigating climate change is by moving towards plant-based eating and eating fewer animal products. Um, and I do appreciate it's a difficult decision for many people to make. I don't like to preach. I don't think I definitely don't judge anyone. You know, my best many of my best friends are meat eaters. Um, so it's not it's not just the ethics, the morals, but there's also the environmental considerations. And I appreciate it's not an easy decision for everybody to make, but certainly a move towards a plant-based diet will produce very many benefits for your health, your performance, as well as the environment and for the life and quality of life of animals. So I hope that, um, yeah, I just hope that it's something that people will be considering anyway. Yeah, and I think hopefully our conversation just goes to show that you can, you know, achieve the performance that you can on a meat-based diet. You might just take a little bit more thought yeah. and consideration in terms of what you're getting yeah. in through your nutrition. But actually, we probably should all be paying a bit more attention to the nutrition element of things anyway. So yeah. we can achieve just as much on a plant-based diet. Yeah, and fact, you know, just a, a final just leading on from that. Actually, the plant-based diet can be really, really tasty, really exciting, absolutely delicious. It kind of opens up a whole new culinary world. I mean, there's a misconception that it's expensive or it's time-consuming or difficult. The converse is actually true because once you've just got hold of a few basics, okay, I know it means changing one or two of your, your habits, but um, plant-based diet can can just be so tasty. There's so many brilliant combinations of you know, pulses of vegetables, you can make stews, curries. So in fact, many of my meals I can just throw together in 10 or 15 minutes. So I make a lot of curries um, at the moment. I'm doing a lot of sort of tray bait recipes. So I roast up some vegetables, I mix them with chickpeas or beans of some sort, um, some kind of dressing. I'll add in either potatoes or for catchy bread. So it's actually really, really easy and it doesn't take me very much time at all to make meals so just getting those basics right and then it just opens up this fantastic culinary experience which I love. Very helpfully that leads me on to asking you um, just to end would you mind sharing where people can find out more information about you and your books because you do have a cookbook for the plant-based athlete which I think would be really helpful. Yeah, sure. So um, you can look at my website. There's a lot of free information, articles and recipes on my website, anitabean.co.uk. I'm on Instagram, anitabean1. And I'm on Twitter as Anita Bean. And um, yeah, I, I do share many plant-based recipes on, on my social media platforms. So thank you so much for having me on. I've really enjoyed our conversation today, Amy. Many thanks to Anita for joining me on this episode to discuss sports nutrition. If you'd like to access some of Anita's recipes and learn more about her work, then you can visit anitabean.co.uk 
or you can find Anita on Instagram at anitabean1. If you enjoyed this episode, please do share it and give it a rating and do get in touch if there's topics or guests who you'd like to see on a future episode. If you'd like to hear more from me, then you can head to marathonmedic.com where you'll find more podcast episodes, blog posts and training tips, as well as coaching information. You can also find me on Instagram by searching Marathon Medic. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.